Welcome to the range. This has been our home for the last 27 years. Um, our oldest was, Bob was 13, I guess, when we got here. And it uh, doesn't seem possible. The years have flown by. For the first 40 years of my life, I was very much like those to head of Young Hertfords over there, off by themselves, wanting to go off up into the Aspen, and having to have somebody, whether it be the preacher or my dad or Sunday school teacher or a business associate or whoever, try to get me back in the herd. Uh, we call them mavericks. And I'm talking to a bunch of them right here in the room tonight. And you know exactly what I'm talking about, because that's you, huh? And uh, it's always nice to have these girls. Uh, they're all girls, and we know that. Um, the black ones in there are the boys, because uh, our bulls are all Angus. And we, we cross them and feel like we get a little bit better price at the market. But at the age of 40, uh, God did get a hold of my heart. And it was through some businessmen. And immediately thereafter, while I began to do some things that Winston was talking about, which I had not done, uh, even though I came out of a wonderful heritage and a godly home and, and the whole shooting match. Now I looked around, what, what can I do? I think that's always the feeling of a guy when you, when Christ becomes real to you and the whole thing takes on a new dimension. I want to do something. And uh, I even went to our church um, seminary back in Princeton, New Jersey, thinking maybe I should be a preacher. And when I sat in on some of the classes, I decided that wasn't for me. Uh, that isn't where I was coming from. I was a jock in college. and theology and Greek and Hebrew and all that was not my ball game. And then I tried some Christian organizations thinking that's where it should be. And our children used to get us to go to guest ranches down in uh, Tucson and Wickenburg and several places in Southern Cal. We were living in Los Angeles. And uh, we fell in love with the concept of a guest ranch. And uh, so through uh, the NAVs, the Navigators, and Dawson Trotman, and Lauren Sani, and a fellow who just passed away this last week, Rod Sargent, these were the fellows that God used to touch my heart. Uh, we came back here to uh, Colorado, the death of the founder of the organization, Dawson Trotman, looked around for something to do, and uh, here we are. And so we're glad to share it with you. And uh, we're open, uh, we say year-round, but we're really not. We close down after New Year's for about six weeks to give our staff a breather and to catch our own breath and get organized for the new year. So this is the first crank-up into 1987. So if something isn't working in your cabin, let us know. This is the first time they've been used since uh, the Christmas holidays. Some of you fellows are in a new cabin. We had a fire up there on the hill 
didn't lose anybody, but we lost everything in it in the cabin in uh, mid-August, uh, early part of August. So we just uh, finished that one. And there could be a lot of things going wrong. I know there's no curtains, so um, you can dress or undress or do whatever you want to do and, and let all the coyotes and the deer and so forth of the ranch uh, watch you do it. Um, but I know some of the cabins have had problems with uh, the water system, and if you have problems, well, let us know. I don't know what we'll do about it, but uh, <laughs> let us know. <laughs> uh, I got a letter about this seminar from uh, St. Parker, and uh, <laughs> he invited me to come to Lost Valley to attend it, and... Um, he gave us a theme for the conference, and I presume that uh, my job tonight is to sort of kick off that theme and get our thinking going that way. Um, the leadoff hitter in a ball game is supposed to get on base, and then uh, the heavy stuff comes in tomorrow and Saturday, and um, we hope they clean the bases and uh, it's a winner. As I thought about the theme for the weekend, I went back to about 1980 when I read a book. At that time, I only read it because it was the experience of a man's heart, and I love biographies. And uh, Dennis Conner uh, wrote in this book, uh, No Excuse to Lose, published in uh, 78. And I thought, wow, that guy really has a passion to be a winner. And so it's no surprise that the uh, United States today featured him pretty extensively in the last couple of weeks. But uh, he had this in his book, a little different words, but this is February the third issue of U.S. Today in the sports section. For four years, Dennis discussed and focused in on winning back the cup. He had sacrificed his business role, and by some, his family life as well. It's a standard he holds for the entire crew. Quote, if anybody puts this ahead of religion, family, home, and career, then I'll consider him. I want men who will shape up or ship up. Priority. See, we can read that in this leader of the Stars and Stripes. He's a hard taskmaster, huh? You've worked for some bosses like that. Perhaps you're that kind of a guy. Perhaps you've experienced it in corporate life. Tough. No excuse to lose. Always be a winner. And $17 million later, we know what happened down there in Australia. Would you turn with me to two portions of scripture? 
One is the third chapter of the book of Daniel, and the other one is our theme for the weekend, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I'd like to read the story here in the third chapter of Daniel. I'm reading it out of the authorized version. Daniel, I don't know, it's page 900. <laughs> it is. Isn't it? Yep. Good. God bless you, you're in. <laughs> That's one of the prophets in the old tale. I was four of the pages are still sticking together. They say, uh, go to Psalms and turn right. <laughs> Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and it gets into all those great big ones, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Twelve little chapters. Find it, Jim? Got it, huh? Good. Got it memorized? All right, this is a hairy story. Uh, it's wild, but uh, listen to it anyway, okay? Here we go. Nebuchadnezzar, now that the scene is in Babylon, one of the great empires of ancient history. This is 2,500 years ago. And Nebuchadnezzar was the top man. He was an autocrat. He was a dictator. He alone controlled uh, the whole Midwest, uh, the mid-eastern uh, part of, uh, from the Mediterranean all the way to India. Millions and millions of people. 120 provinces or countries. That's who this guy is. So he makes an image of gold whose height was 90 feet and breadth 9 feet. Any guys in engineering? That's a weird deal, huh? 9 by 90. But he did it. And he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent together together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the idol of gold which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. You'll notice, by the way, nine times it uses that expression, the king set up. Then the princes and the governors and the captains and the judges and the treasurers and the counselors and the sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that at that time that you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the sabbath and the psaltery and the dusimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship. Kind of like some of the music of today, huh? And uh, you fall down. 
and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoever falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre, the scythebuck and the psalter and all kinds of music, interested in that, they, let out the, they left out the dusimer. Uh, I don't know why they left that one out. That's the bagpipe, by the way. Uh, but that wasn't included in verse 9. Maybe uh, he was still warming up. Uh, then all the people and the nations and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came there and accused the Jews these three buddies of Daniel. Remember the story? Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. All right. Uh, now the Chaldeans were jealous. This is why they did it. Now this is more than just a governmental thing. It's more than just a cultural thing. This is a religious thing. This was the religion. Any of you uh, fellows have been overseas, you know there are many countries that uh, the king or the emperor is a god. And you worship him. And that's why Christianity is forbidden in many countries. And so they accused the Jews, and they spoke and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the sackbuck, the psaltery, and the dissimilar, and got back in now, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever falleth not down and worship, that he shall be cast into the midst of the burning, of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said unto them, Is it true? I admire Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him a shot at it, huh? He didn't take the word of the Chaldeans who were supposed to be his counselors. He wanted to find out firsthand. He didn't want to do it, because he loved these men as he did. I don't know where Daniel was. He, maybe they were afraid to touch him because he was so important to the king and so beloved by the king, or maybe he was out doing the king's business someplace in the empire. He doesn't even come into this story. And so is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if you be ready, that at that time that you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the sackbuck, the psaltery, and the dissimilar, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Take the time to read the preceding story in the, in the uh, second chapter. He forgot that he had given that God the glory. That God had given to Daniel the answer to his dreams. He acknowledged 
that Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. That's probably why he made this image all of gold, gold-plated. But who is that God that can deliver you out of my hands? Well, you talk about bankruptcy of theology. Nebuchadnezzar really had it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. It sounds, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit uh, like they weren't uh, too coy here. What they're saying is, and I don't know how your translation is, I read about six different translations of it, but they're simply saying, Hey, king, we don't have to go back to our room and pray about it and think it through and discuss whether this is something we should do. The decision has already been made. If it be so, verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not... And gentlemen, that's where a lot of you are coming from tonight. You know that the living God of heaven, the God we're singing about, the God we're praying to, is God. He is the true God. He's the God not only of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and all the rest of the smear of the great ones in the scripture, but he is the God of today. And we know that that God is able. The tough one is what they said. But if not, if you still have to go through bankruptcy, if you still have to go through cancer, divorce, lose your job, your children, what are you going through? What is it that you couldn't even share with your prayer pal tonight? Because there hasn't developed that intimacy yet. Some of the other fellows here from where you live know. You know that God is God, huh? And you know that God is able. But if not, oh, I love this paralyzing possibility. Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image that thou hast set up. No messing around, huh? God is God. God is able. But if not, no way, Jose. And Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, let's turn over to the New Testament. We'll come back. We won't leave you there. Ah, oh, yeah. Just getting warmed up here.
Second Timothy, four. Where in the New Testament now? And don't be ashamed if you take a little while to find it. It's just good to thumb through and find it for yourself. And Second Timothy, this is a young son of Paul, son in the Lord. Timothy didn't have a believing father. He's raised by his grandmother and his mother. And Paul became surrogate father, as it were spiritually for sure. And uh, Paul has lived some 40 years in the trenches for God. He made Christianity viable across the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, almost single-handedly. That, that's a little unfair, but he, he, he was the guy out there in front <laughs> leading the charge. Now his departure is soon at hand. He's going to be put to death there in Rome. The Caesars and their whole plan just hated him and cursed the Jews, hated him with a passion. Didn't have long to live. And here's what he writes. Verse 6, I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And I think, in reference, Paul is saying to Timothy, young fella, probably somewhere in maybe his 30s at this time, maybe closer to 40, in the prime of his life, in the prime of his ministry, shape up or ship out. But I want you to know, as far as I'm concerned, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Excuse me, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And I want to suggest for your thinking tonight that you and I will never be able to say that as Paul did unless right now in your life you begin to put the pilings down that make that possible. You don't suddenly come to the end of your life, whether it be by accident or sickness or just by life itself or whatever, and suddenly be able to say in a letter over the phone or to a buddy there in the hospital, I just want you to know, friend, that I have fought a good fight and I have run the race and I have kept the faith. Now, this is the result of a man who soon after that experience on the road to Damascus when he saw the living Christ and he was blinded and they took him into the city and then for the next three years absent from public appearance God spoke to Paul and, and Paul in his own testimony, he said, I was caught up into the third heavens, and I was shown things that 
I can't even share with you. What are the three things that he talks about here? Well, number one, he knew his enemy. I have fought a good fight. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, 18. But against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness. Do you know your enemy? Do you know who you're wrestling against? Do you know who is your adversary that would like to defeat you? Number two, he established his priorities. I have finished my course. The first one is a wrestling match. This is a track meet. Very well known to Timothy and the, Greek and the Grecian society in which he lived where the Olympics uh, had their start. Wrestling matches were very common and as were foot races. But Paul brings it over into the Christian life and said, I have finished my course. You've heard the expression, but it's so true. There's lots of beginners, but there are few finishers. Lots of guys get started in the Christian faith, but boy, because they have not established priorities and gotten some things anchored down in their life, they wilt down the track, huh? Howie Hendricks loves to share, we're not in a hundred-yard dash. The Christian life is cross-country. It may be 26 miles. <laughs> been reading the National Geographic in my nightstand about the Appalachian Trail. It was all the way from way down there in Tennessee, clear up into Maine. What is it? 1,200, 1,500 miles. One fellow's done it six times, walked it. He, he had a priority. He wanted to accomplish. And, you know, life is a wrestling match with an enemy who wants to defeat us. But life also is a race. Do you plan to finish your course? May I just say tonight, with a few gray hairs that are left on top, it doesn't get easier the older you get. The race gets tougher. It is an obstacle course. But notice the third thing. I have kept the faith. Solidify your convictions. Know what you believe. Believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. When you come to the end of your life here upon earth, and she said in verse 6, I am ready to be offered. Because I believe 40 years before, Saul of Tarsus, now a baby Christian, decided this is what I'm going to do by the grace of God. Okay, now, let's go back to uh, Daniel. Can you find it once again? Should have had you keep your finger in it. 
you're going to know your enemy and establish some priorities and solidify your convictions, let's learn from these three fellows who did it. It was true. They didn't have a local church to go to. It wasn't an easy environment in which they lived. They were in exile. Jews in the Babylonian Empire. They were minorities. Basically, they were hated. Hated because of their nationality. Hated because of their wisdom. Hated because of their position in leadership. And boy, you talk about a holocaust that would wipe these fellows out. I love the verbs beginning in verse 21. We quit reading in verse 20, okay? Notice there are four verbs that tell the story. In verse 21, these men were bound in their coats and their stockings and their turbans. In other words, their ceremonial dress. They came all like everybody else, all dressed up for the occasion. But they wouldn't bow that knee. And were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 23, And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar said, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And then verse 26, And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come forth and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth from the midst of the fiery furnace. They were thrown into, they fell down, bound, they got up, freed, walked around in the midst of it. They were no anxious to get out. It was the coolest place in Babylon that particular afternoon, and they in the middle of the furnace. One of the reasons why it was cool is because there was a fourth one walking there with them. They were not alone, huh? May I just suggest to you tonight, if you're in the middle of what you would consider a fiery furnace, it may not be seven times hotter than usual, you don't have to go it alone. Boy, that's the Christian message. You don't have to hack it on your own wisdom. As brilliant as these fellows were, They got up and were walking, and they came forth from the midst of the fire. And I don't care how hot it is, how tough it is, how rough it is, how seemingly impossible it is, someplace down the road you will come forth. The question is how? Well, notice in verse 27, the princes and the governors and the captains and the king's counselors by the way, just check who's there 
by who was invited in verse 3. Some of them were missing. Uh, and I don't know whether the, uh, the uh, author here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit left them out, and, but uh, it's just fun to check the two lists. And these uh, leaders, this is the leadership of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, saw these men upon whom, on whose bodies the fire had no power. That's one thing. Their hair was not singed. Their coats did not burn, nor the smell of fire had passed upon them. Miracle, huh? Now notice the evidence that demands a verdict in verse 27 brings this response. Nebuchadnezzar spoke and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the word blessed is the word that we use for doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. There'll come a time in your life when you can step back and see the way God walked with you through it, and you can say, praise the Lord. But notice that it wasn't they who were doing the doxology. Who was it? Who was it? Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, the emperor, <coughs> the father who had built this 90-foot image. He's the one that said it. He has sent his angel and delivered his servants. Now we're coming down to the finale here. What was it that Nebuchadnezzar saw in these three in these three fellows that caused him to praise God? I think it's the same three things that Paul wrote to Timothy about. Not using the same words. Notice. God has sent his angel and delivered his servants, number one, who trusted in him. Remember back in verse 18? But if God does not deliver us, he's able, but if he doesn't, be it known unto you that we will not serve your gods. And you know, for a Jewish fellow, that would be ingrained into him, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, huh? Thou shalt have no other God before thee. Period. There's one God. Nebuchadnezzar tried to get them to welch out. And I don't need to tell you tonight the gods that come into your life seeking your adoration in your worship, in your time. I don't know what it is that Dennis Connor says, but if somebody will put ahead of religion and family and home and career, I'll consider him. Well, that same intensity of purpose was in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trusted in God. Then notice in the second place, and hath changed 
the king's word. Can you think through on the implications of that statement? This is the king saying, you fellas trust in a God who can change the very decrees of the greatest empire that the world has ever known. You talk about the laws of the Medes and the Persians. God can change it. You know, we get all uptight about what's going on in D.C., and we should get uptight. Or what's going on between our country and Russia, or uh, the common market, or with the relationship with Japan, and all the intricacies that are going on today. And the laws that are being passed. And what the Supreme Court is or isn't doing. Interesting, isn't it? that the pagan king realized that there is a God in heaven who has the heart of the king in his hands as rivers of water. And he turneth that heart whichever way he wants. Down this irrigation ditch, into this canal, out into that field, God, has the affairs of the world in his hands. And boy, if you don't believe it in the third chapter, sometime this weekend, read the fourth chapter of Daniel, where it's acknowledged that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of this world. He can change the king's word. He can change hearts. He can rule and overrule. And there's nothing too tough for God. And yet we sit here tonight and say, yeah, but my situation's different. Friend of mine, it isn't different. If you will do what Saul of Tarsus did, so that years later he could come to the end and say, I have finished. I have run. I have kept. Because you trust in a living God who can change the king's word. And notice the third thing. They have yielded their bodies. <laughs> wow. Just the contempt that they had for three score and ten years. Friend of mine, let me ask you a question. Are you living here on this earth as a stranger and pilgrim? Are you putting all your eggs into this life basket as if you're going to live forever? Huh? Where is your security? your eternal life. They didn't count their lives dim to themselves. They realized that they were just transits. They were 
lucky that they weren't killed over there in Palestine as young teenagers, 16, 17, 18 years of age, brought to Babylon. They were thankful to be alive. But now, a pagan king says, if you don't bow down be, be, uh, in front of my idol, you'll die. <laughs> you know what Paul said? Hey, dying's better. Because that's to be with Christ. But it's expedient that I stay alive to fulfill the mission that God has for me here on this earth. Now, I'm sure they were scared. They had blood going through their veins. They weren't some sort of saint that was so different from us. I'm sure they, <laughs> you know, perspiration was coming off their brow, not just from the heat of the furnace, but I wonder how God's going to pull this one off. And what we would love to have him do was to extinguish the fire, huh? Or to send angels down and to kill the henchmen who were going to throw them in and, and kill Nebuchadnezzar. No. God let him go right into the midst, right into the midst of the fire. They yielded their bodies. I'm sure that's why Paul said in Romans 12, 1, huh? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is just your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what the weekend is all about. If you want to be conformed to this world, you're going to struggle this weekend. But if you're willing to let go by the renewing of that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So I read Dennis Conner's book in 1980 and I thought, I wonder if he'll ever have a chance to do it again. Yeah? You see, from a human point of view, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lost, huh? They were thrown into the fire. But no, they were the winners. Nebuchadnezzar and all of his men were the losers. By the way, he doesn't make the commitment to God until the next chapter. He had his chance in chapter 2. He had his chance in chapter 3. He didn't do it. But the end of chapter 4, the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. But why did he have to wait till he was in his 70s or 80s? He could have said with Paul, I have fought. I have finished. I have kept. And when thou goest through the waters, I'll be with you. For lo, I am the Lord thy God, thy Savior. Isaiah 43, 
verse 2. Father in heaven, the world tells us there is no excuse to lose. And yet, the Christian theology teaches that to lose is to win. To lose my life is to gain it. And to be able to come to the end of my life having fought, having run, having kept, I've got to establish some priorities and some principles. I've got to solidify what I really do believe. I've got to get to know this book, so this book will get a hold of me and, could, and control every decision, every thought, my actions. And Lord, I've got to get to know my enemy. But I get to know him as the counterfeit by getting to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable even unto his death. And so take these thoughts from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the theme for the conference and prepare us for tomorrow and Saturday that you can work us over as we're available to you. In your precious name, amen.